your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. Another week has passed. The weeks just seem to fly by. And uh, there are new developments. Uh, the uh, vaccine that we talked about last week, uh, Pfizer's vaccine now has been joined by Moderna with uh, very, very similar results. And uh, I'm quite surprised that uh, I, I did a video on this, which is uh, on my Facebook page and also on the Gazette uh, website, where I discussed the uh, ramifications and how the uh, vaccine was developed and what it really means. I'm surprised by the number of people who say that, that they don't trust the vaccine, that they must have taken shortcuts because they developed it uh, so much faster than any other vaccine has been developed before, and uh, that there's monkey business going on. I'm really surprised uh, by this distrust that has developed, uh, you know, uh, about science. Yes, this vaccine was developed very quickly, but that is because there was a lot of brain power that was put to use. Never before has there been such a concerted uh, project to solve a problem, because we do have a very big problem. The whole world does. And researchers around the world have been working on this. And importantly, they have been sharing their ideas. And uh, although, of course, different companies are developing vaccines, there's a lot of cooperation between the, uh, the companies, something that we have not seen before. Of course, it is impossible to guarantee safety. We cannot do that in any aspect of life. Since this is a totally new platform, the messenger RNA, the idea being that you inject RNA, which is a template for the protein that is on the surface of the coronavirus, those spikes, and that uh, the messenger RNA will then code for the production of those uh, proteins in the body, the immune system will recognize those proteins or fragments thereof, generate antibodies towards them, and should we encounter the live virus, uh, the antibodies will go to work on it and will try to stifle it. It all sounds very good. So far, it seems to work well, uh, but admittedly, the studies are not that large. Uh, the Pfizer study had 44,000 uh, subjects divided into two groups, the experimental and the placebo group. The Moderna study had 30,000 people, again, divided uh, in, in half. And in both cases, uh, they had, after three months, uh, a number of people who came down with the infection. In the case of Pfizer, uh, it was 170. And out of those 170, 162 were in the placebo group. This is where the 95% efficacy that you hear comes from, 162 out of 170. And Moderna had some similar statistics. Now, it is true that that's not a very large number of infections. And we will have to wait some time until you know the study progresses and see whether or not the same kind of statistics are, are replicated. But in any case, so far, it is very encouraging development. And I'm just surprised that, that uh, people are trying to, to uh, dismiss, uh, dismiss it as somehow you know, not being honestly uh, arrived at. 
I can tell you that uh, I know how this research works. They have done a great job. Of course, there's motivation here, financial motivation, because in the end, of course, there will be a lot of money made with effective vaccine. However, uh, it is also the way that we can eventually climb out of this uh, situation. Sure, there are still questions. For example, we only know the number of people who were infected to the degree that they had symptoms. We don't know whether or not the vaccine protected uh, against asymptomatic infections, which of course is the major worry. Uh, I think that they have such data, but we haven't seen it yet because so far we have only seen the press release. I suspect that they must have such data because surely uh, during the course of this trial, they have been testing, testing, and testing. So they will know how many people are asymptomatic uh, carriers. And of course, we don't know that if there is immunity, which there appears to be, how long it will last. Uh, so far, uh, animal experiments and some preliminary human experiments have suggested that this is not going to be uh, a vaccine that will give you uh, immunity lifelong, like the measles vaccine. Chances are it will be relatively short term and that there will have to be boosters. Also, of course, there's the complication that both of these vaccines uh, require two doses. There's the distribution problem because the Pfizer vaccine has to be uh, kept at minus 70 degrees, which is dry ice temperature. Uh, Moderna is only minus 20, so that should be a bit more easier to, to manage. Anyway, it is a first step. But uh, again, I, you know, I'm surprised by all the, the negative comments that, uh, that we get uh, about uh, you know, essentially distrusting the technology and distrusting that enough testing has been, uh, has been carried out. I followed this since the beginning. I, I think that they have done a good job. Of course, there are unknowns, but we're dealing here with a situation that we have never encountered before. So one takes chances. And so far, I, I don't see that they are taking unreasonable uh, chances. Okay, something uh, else, talking about how you know, people are very quick to jump on, on uh, anything, just to be critical. I did a comment yesterday on, on Facebook about uh, Aaron Brockovich. Now, I've not been a fan of Erin Brockwich. I, in fact, I've, I've written a couple of columns uh, on her. Uh, I think that uh, her allegation about chromium uh, in California was uh, uh, wrong. Uh, I, th I think that there were other explanations for the disease patterns there. But anyway, uh, that's not the issue. The issue is that now she's on another uh, crusade, this time against perfluoroalkyl compounds. Now, this time there is some legitimacy here. These compounds, these uh, polyfluorinated um, uh, carbons, uh, are ubiquitous in the environment because they have been used in all kinds of connections from firefighting phones to the manufacture of Teflon, which is where uh, we get into this controversy. These chemicals, like PFOA, which is the one that she is talking about, perfluorooctanoic acid, was used in the manufacture of Teflon. It's an emulsifier. It was needed in order to make the substance. It is not part of the final uh, substance. And PFOA is indeed a problematic compound. It has been linked with various diseases, including cancer. And because 
of the manufacturing process, the large-scale manufacturing process of substances that are, 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 are made with it, there has been leakage into the environment. And uh, around the plants where it is made, the DuPont plants, there have been issues with increased incidence of, of disease. So this is very legitimate, and we really have to be careful uh, monitoring this and making sure that it doesn't get into groundwater. All of that is true. And I think in this case, she is uh, you know, on, on the right uh, path, except for one thing. She said, you know that chemical PFOA, which we also know as Teflon, is extremely hazardous. Well, no, PFOA is not Teflon. PFOA is not found in Teflon. PFOA was used in the manufacture of Teflon, but that has since been replaced by other chemicals. It is no longer used by any manufacturing plant. So it is uh, you know, something that needs to be corrected because I think this kind of, of verbiage scares people. They think that when they're cooking in a Teflon pan, they're exposing themselves to this stuff that Erin Brockovich is talking about, which is, uh, is just not the case. I think it is very important when someone is going to go on some kind of a chemical crusade such as this that you have an appropriate chemical background and you can read the literature, you can understand what is, is, is going on. That's why you know, I've always been an advocate of, of uh, uh, proper background for anyone who's going to get into discussions about toxicology, which is a very complex field. Okay, we're going to take a bit of a break. Uh, we'll check for traffic, and after that, we'll come back and talk about miasmas. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, our question of the day. <clears throat> what item did Italian physician Gabriele Fallopio describe in his book, De Morbo Gallico, in 1564? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can, of course, call with any other question, and you can text us, too, at 514-800. So we're looking to find out the item that Italian physician Gabriele Fallopio described in his book, and the title of the book was De Morbo Gallico. It was published in 1564. Uh, before we get to my miasma, uh, so many people have asked, again, you know, in conjunction with, with uh, my posts about the virus and, and my video, whether or not I would take the vaccine when it becomes available. Uh, I absolutely would. I trust the scientific method. I think that it has been properly followed. And unless there is some unforeseen circumstance between now and when it becomes uh, available, uh, yes, I, I would... Uh, take it, uh, even though I do understand that, that there's no guarantee that it is going to be absolutely protective and that it doesn't come with any side effects. Okay, well, let me now get back to, well, you know where? We're going to go to Greece, 430 BC, Athens. A, th a quarter of the population of the city perished. This was known as the Great Plague of Athens. What was it due to? Historians have proposed smallpox, bubonic plague, typhus, even Ebola. 
but there's there's really no evidence for any of these. The fact is that that we just don't know. All of these diseases could have happened because, of course, they occurred throughout history. The Athenians believed that the gods had turned against them. But you know what? Hippocrates, who, of course, we know as the father of medicine, did not concur with this. His view was that diseases were caused by foul air that was emanating from putrefying carcasses or from rotting vegetation, and that this uh, epidemic, whatever it was, could be curbed by lighting fire made with aromatic woods in the street. You know what? Uh, I'm sure that they did that, but it was a futile thing, uh, no matter what the actual disease was, because you don't cure any of these bacterial and viral diseases with uh, aromas. Uh, But uh, the pleasant smell may have at least uh, masked some of the putrid odors that were wafting out from the funeral pyres that were burning all over the city because that's what they had to do with the dead. There were so many dead that uh, they were piling up and they had to to burn them. Anyway, later on, Hippocrates' ideas about these noxious vapors causing disease would become the miasma theory of disease. And that term derives from the ancient Greek. What does it mean? Well, it means defilement. Miasma in ancient Greek meant defilement or pollution. Malaria, for example, was thought to be caused by defiled air, and the name of that disease derives from the Latin for mala, which is bad, and aria for air. Of course, malaria doesn't come from the air. Well, not directly anyway. I suppose one could argue that uh, it does come from the air because that's where mosquitoes are flying around, and it's the mosquitoes that bear the parasite. Uh, And the female mosquito, uh, it's only the female that bites. Uh, When she bites, she injects this parasite, and that's what causes uh, malaria. But malaria was not caused by some sort of bad air. But interestingly enough, Hippocrates was so revered that this miasma theory held sway until Louis Pasteur managed to link microbes with disease and spawned the germ theory of disease, and that was in the middle of the 19th century. Actually, uh, you know, we, we always give credit to Pasteur as kind of being the father of the germ theory of disease, and that is, is not 100% correct. He indeed was the first one to actually prove that germs can cause disease. But long before Pasteur, the Persian physician Avicenna suggested, this was way back in the 11th century, that people can spread disease to others uh, through their breath and even discuss transmission through water or by dirt. And then in the 14th century, Arab physicians Ibn Katima and Ibn al-Khatib hypothesized about what they called minute bodies passing disease through clothing, shared food, or even jewelry. And 200 years later, Italian physician Girolamo Fracastoro proposed that diseases are spread by seed-like particles that can transmit infection by direct contact or even without direct contact and yet over long distances. These minute bodies and seed-like particles became a reality in the 17th century when Antoine van Leeuwenhoek looked through a microscope that he designed himself 
and saw what he called little animalcules cavorting around. He didn't link these to disease, but the germs, as they came to be called, played a significant role in Dr. John Snow's classic 1849 essay on the mode of communication of cholera. Although Pasteur would not publish his germ theory until 1861, it is clear that Snow had an understanding of disease transmission by tiny invisible substances. He correctly suggested that cholera was transmitted by the fecal-oral route and hypothesized, quote, the excretions of the sick at once suggest themselves as containing some material which being accidentally swallowed might attach itself to the mucous membrane or small intestine and there multiply itself by appropriation of surrounding matter. You know what? That was bang on. Bang on. Of course, he didn't know that these tiny little invisible germs uh, were bacteria. Uh, that bacterium would not be isolated, uh, unfortunately, until after Dr. Snow had passed away. Uh, that would come in 1884 when microbiologist Robert Koch isolated the bacterium that caused uh, cholera. But uh, you know what? Even though John Snow collected fascinating statistics about the spread of cholera, he really wasn't believed. And his statistics were interesting. He proved his point by demonstrating that people got their water from a company that sourced it from within the city, had a death rate of 315 per 10,000 households, while those who purchased water drawn from the Thames River upstream, where it was cleaner, died at a rate of just 37 per 10,000. And then, of course, came his famous contribution, mapping the incidence of cholera in Soho and showing a cluster around a pump in Broad Street. But... Despite the evidence, a parliamentary committee that was charged with looking into the cholera epidemic discounted Snow's germ theory in favor of the miasma theory, claiming that it was effluvia from offensive trades such as bone boilers and tallow producers that caused the disease. What were bone boilers? Well, they were people who took the, the, uh, the bones of animals uh, and uh, boiled them in order to make glue and then chop up the bones to make bone meal, which was used as fertilizer. The tallow producers uh, produced tallow, which of course was used in cooking, and also uh, to make soap. Even the prestigious journal wrote a scathing editorial insinuating that snow was in the pocket of those industries that produced pestilent vapors, miasms, and loathsome abominations of every kind. They were wrong. Snow was right. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll check news, and then we'll be back with my favorite ever guest, Dr. Debbie Schwartz. Science you can use the Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. On the line is uh, Dr. Debbie Schwartz. Debbie is the kind of doctor who actually does some good, unlike me. And uh, these days we only meet on FaceTime and uh, over the radio because uh, we are abiding by the uh, physical distancing uh, rules. Hey, Debbie. Hi there. <laughs> so this week you have been uh, quite busy. Uh, yeah. Talking about uh, Premier Legault and his uh, 
kind of view that this uh, virus uh, has some religious affiliations in the sense that uh, it's going to take uh, the Christmas holidays off and that people can get together, uh, although in somewhat of a limited way, and uh, somehow the infection is, is not going to propagate. So I know that, uh, like so many of us, you were disturbed by this uh, rather bizarre view. So let's, uh, let's talk about it. What bothered you about it? Well, I was really worried going into the press conference, actually, because he had made a couple of other insinuations that would have been, I think, far worse, um, like the closure of schools. So I think um, a lot of us were really panicked about that, and I quickly put a letter together to the premier to at least do my part to, to, uh, to I felt that that was a terrible idea. Um, I really feel that as a family doctor um, that, you know, I feel that it's my responsibility to do what I can to advise the public and, um, you know, do what I feel is right. Um, so I don't feel right just sitting back and listening without giving my two cents when I think that it's going to be um, to the uh, harm of the public. Um, so, you know, obviously, as you know, my big concern is that, uh, like you already mentioned, that the premier has given us a four-day vacation from COVID, essentially. And of course, yes, he has made some, you know, rules around it, but I think that people are really hearing what those rules are and are just talking about the vacation. Um, and of course, like you mentioned, COVID is not a religious virus and it's not going to just take off the four days. And I, I think that it's very dangerous um, for us to go ahead and do this. Especially now that we have pretty solid evidence that, that the spikes that we're seeing, especially in the U.S., are due to people gathering indoors. Yeah, and in private gatherings specifically. Um, so I think that that's, you know, it's particularly dangerous um, when people are in close quarters with each other. And obviously they're not going to be wearing masks for the entire time because you can't eat or drink with a mask on. Um, and I find it hard to believe that people will maintain um, a distance from each other and will keep the windows open in the dead of winter. Yeah, and uh, uh, especially with Thanksgiving coming up in the U.S., where although there's going to be, I think, less travel than one normally sees on Thanksgiving, there's still going to be a very significant amount of, of, of travel, and uh, no. they're going to see uh, another spike well, it'll be interesting to see if that makes any difference to um, our government's decisions, because he did mention that if um, if there was a deterioration over the coming five weeks, that he may, um, you know, that they may change their mind. So it will be interesting to see what happens, um, because, I mean, uh, my big concern now is that people have gotten the green light to get together over the holidays. And so they're at this point now where they're feeling that pandemic fatigue and they're thinking to themselves, well, if we're allowed to get holidays, then why not now? And I think that that's incredibly dangerous. It is, absolutely. What are you seeing in the hospital in terms of cases? We're seeing a, a, a significant uptick in cases um, and um, we're seeing a lot of spread. Um, 
you know, amongst people, um, amongst healthcare workers. And it's, it's, it's quite frightening, especially as we see more and more the long-term effects of COVID and how long you can potentially be wiped out from it, even if you recover, you know, relatively quickly. Is everyone who comes in to, to emerge now tested? Um, so essentially, every, everyone who is going to be admitted to the hospital gets tested. But someone who just walks into emerge, no, no, so no, so, but you assume that they are positive, right? Um, so we don't wear a gown and gloves and visor necessarily for every single patient. Um, I personally, I mean, we all are wearing a mask. It's mandatory to wear a mask in the hospital setting. Um, and I personally wear glasses at all times. Um, but only for the patients who are specifically uh, so meeting criteria, having symptoms of that would be consistent with coronavirus, would you wear the full getup, which includes um, a, a jacket uh, and a visor in addition to your glasses? So you don't, in, in, uh, in the hospital, uh, if someone is confirmed as, as COVID-19, they get transferred to one of the centers where they are equipped to deal with it, right? You don't keep them. Exactly. And, you know, it's also interesting that uh, the death rate, certainly, you know, we see this in in, in, uh, in North America, the death rate has been going down. And people, especially in the U.S., and, you know, the Trump supporters are, are, are claiming that uh, uh, this, this is, uh, you know, the disease is being beaten. Yeah, this is total nonsense. The, the The reason the death rate is is going down is because there are a lot more young people who are being admitted to hospitals, and of course they do better because their immune system is is uh, more active and they're not uh, as likely to to die. Yeah, that is true. But of course, there are young people who can get extremely sick as well, and I think that that's really important to bear in mind since I find that a lot of the Younger populations seem, you know, they, they tend to think of themselves as more invincible, um, which, you know, worries me a lot, especially going towards the holiday season, because as, you know, as I had discussed before, the rules that we're given, you know, uh, you know, many people may just think of it in terms of families, but you have to remember that people have, you know, teenagers at home, they have young adolescents at home, and those kids are starved of their friends and, and social, you know, they, they're suffering from social isolation. And so they want to see their friends. And so they're going to go out to their parties and see their friends. Um, so one household is not necessarily just being exposed to the potential 40 people, you know, 10 people per night, because they may have, you know, multiple children that are going out to other parties. So I think that that's really important to bear in mind that you're really opening up your household to an incredible amount of risk <laughs> by allowing this this um, this this partying. Right, and you know this number of ten. I mean, this is just drawn out of thin air. There's yes, this... and he has he has stated that. You know, our premier has stated that it is it was it was meant to 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 make it easy. Um, I mean, my my idea would have been something that would have been, I, I feel, a lot safer, um, which would have been to um, make a bubble, you know, joining two families together, or if you're single, joining yourself with another friend or another family member and sticking with that for the full four, four days. Right. Well, it's a complex business, and it's uh, unnerving, of course. 
But anyway, uh, we'll see. You know what what uh, what happens with this uh, sort of truce, supposedly with the virus over Christmas. I don't think it's going to be a good thing. Anyway, we shall we shall see. So thanks. Yeah, for, yeah, we'll see it. But I think that there is a lot. There is positive as well to acknowledge in you know being given being given the opportunity to socialize because of course there is a dramatic increase in mental health issues um, you know since the since the beginning of the pandemic due to social isolation. So I, I definitely recognize that. Right, and maybe next year I can see you. Maybe maybe <laughs> next year. Okay. All right. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. Hi. All right, we're going to take a break and uh, check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I don't yet have an answer to the question. What item did Italian physician Gabriele Fallopio describe in his book? The title of the book was De Morbo Gallico published in 1564. Give us a call, 514-790-0800. But we do have other people on the line. Uh, Let me go to Robert. Robert? Hey, Robert. I uh, have several high-end, high-quality electronic digital uh, humidity detectors, and I also have some several spring ones, the old-fashioned bimetallic ones. The spread in the numbers, the readings, the digital ones are showing approximately 30% now because of the heated house. Yeah. And the old ones are showing around 40, 42%. What is the difference between relative humidity and other kind of humidity? You mean an absolute humidity? Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. What is the difference? Well, relative humidity is the uh, is comparing uh, humidity of, of what you have to what is the maximum that is possible at that temperature. So... In the in the which one which one should I uh, believe? The, because there's two there's a spread of like twelve percent in the humidity between these various testers, and all the mechanical ones are at around forty two percent, and the digital ones are at thirty percent. Really? Yeah, it's quite interesting, and they're they're they're, they're quality measuring. Well, I, I suspect but, that one of them is measuring absolute humidity. That is what the humidity actually is. That's a thirty percent problem. Yeah, now and the other one is measuring the the uh, what it is compared to what it uh, what the maximum is. So, so which, I, which reading I, would you want? Would, I think I would, would I I would go with the forty. The forty, not with yeah. the thirty. Yeah. You're feeling that the thirty uh, digital one is not accurate. I I think uh, I think the old-fashioned mechanical ones probably are more accurate. Uh, but tell you, I've not I've not played with them, so I, I I'm really not sure. Because I scratch my head, I don't know which one to, to to believe. Okay, let's see if someone else has played with these and compared them, and uh, they can uh, give us a call. Thank you very much. Doctor. I'll also I'll, I'll take a look. I, I'll I'll take a look at exactly how they function, you know, and and see. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll look into that. Okay, thanks. Let's go to Mary. Mary. Yeah, hi, Doctor Joe. Love hi. your show. Um, I'm allergic to corn and corn flour, but I haven't tried corn oil. Would I be automatically allergic to it? Probably not. Why? Uh, because the allergy is to a protein. Okay. And in cornmeal and in corn, of course, you have that that protein. But when the oil is uh, extracted from the corn, it is very unlikely that you have uh, the protein in there. Uh, but there are no, no guarantees because, you know, allergies can be... Uh, uh, it can be due to trace amounts of material. 
although usually not the case for corn. It's the case for peanuts. Okay. But, but I, uh, what? Uh, how is your allergy manifested? Oh, uh, swollen lips and I have trouble breathing. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's not good. So, uh, I mean, I I think it is very unlikely that you would react to corn oil, but but you know what? It's better not to take the chance. I mean, there are enough other oils around. And may I ask you, please, because a lot of labels say vegetable oil. Now, is vegetable oil corn oil? Not necessarily. It usually is canola oil or a mixture of oils. But am I better to stay away from that too, though? Uh, unless it says pure canola oil, it it will say on vegetable oil. It usually will say what it is. A lot of times, no. Yeah, they, if it if it doesn't say, I would stay away from it. Yeah, okay. allergies are something that you don't fool around with. I do know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, thank okay. you so much, Doctor Joe. Bye. Bye, bye. Jerry. Yes. Hi. Hi. Uh, it's about the marble gallicos. So yeah. Be syphilis. Is well, what what, what item? What item? Oh, the the condom. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And you know what de morbo gallico translates to? Well, I would tend to think that dead would be cat or dead sheep. No. No. Morbo is disease. Okay. And gallico. Oh, French. French. Yes, the <laughs> French disease. The French disease. And indeed, uh, uh, Fallopio uh, described a linen sheath. That was used as a condom. Of of course, this was not the first time that condoms were used. Condoms were used long before that, made mostly from animal uh, guts, mm. uh, or or sometimes, believe it or not, gold foil, thin gold foil, because gold is extremely malleable. You know, you can take a piece of gold and beat it until it becomes extremely, extremely thin. Yeah. And the uh, the ancient Romans used uh, gold uh, foil for to to make uh, condoms. That's expensive. Yeah, yes. Uh, well, actually, not necessarily because you need so little in order to, you know, when you beat it, uh, you need very little gold. Yeah. Believe it or not, if you had a piece of gold the size of a matchbox, a small matchbox, yep. uh, you could beat it uh, until you had a thin sheet that covered the tennis court. It's, if I may, uh, in dentistry, we used to do orifications uh, with thin sheets of Right, gold like that, twenty-four carat that we would just hammer one into the other, and it would stay there forever inside of a cavity. Sure, I mean it's a gold is it's great, right? It's just that you know it wasn't uh, aesthetically so pleasing. No, it would cold solder is I think the term that we would use in those days. I don't know if that's adequate or mm-hmm. accurate, but uh, it's almost as if it, you were soldering one. One sheet, one sheet into the other, if you wish. Yeah. It's literally a foil, extremely thin. And the the Russians, of course, were very big on gold fillings and teeth. Yes. And they, they would flash their smiles, you know, showing off all the gold. <laughs> yeah. It's nothing like an oligarch with 10 or 12 gold teeth. Right, right. Uh-huh. Thanks, Dr. Drew. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks very much. Anyway, uh, Fallopio had some clinical evidence for the success of his linen sheath. He claims that he tried it on 1,100 men and not one of them was infected. And then uh, about 200 years later in 1700s, Casanova popularized uh, natural skin condoms that he called English riding coats. I'm not sure exactly where that term uh, came from, but he would always check the condoms by inflating them to make sure that there are no leaks. There's some interesting stuff about condoms. In 1873... Uh, there was a law in the U.S. called the Comstock Law that allowed the post office to confiscate condoms in the mail. 
Germany, believe it or not, in 1941, outlawed the civilian use of condoms because, of course, they wanted to propagate the, the population. And Ireland did not allow sales of condom until 1978, which is pretty recent. In ancient Egypt, they had a different view on how to prevent uh, pregnancies, and that was by placing crocodile dung and honey in the female orifice. Not a pleasant thing to think about. I'm not sure why it had to be crocodile dung. Anyway, the New York Times published its first ever ad for condoms in 1861. Again, relatively recently. So there's probably more than you ever wanted to know about condoms. All right, we have once again uh, come to the end of the show. And uh, I think you learned something today about miasmas and uh, something here about condoms as well and also about the vaccine. Undoubtedly, by next week, we will have some more information on where this disease is heading and maybe some more positive information about the vaccines. So until we meet again, same time, same place, same station, next week, the same time, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>